You're listening to a teaching from Vintage Church LA. This week we're hearing from lead pastor Gare Jones. Mark Twain is famous for saying this. He says, the two most important days in your life are the days you were born, the day you were born, and the day you find out why. The two most important days in your life are the day you were born and the day you found out why. This morning we're looking at the why behind you and me. The why behind why God went to so much length to save you. To die on the cross for you. To sacrifice everything to bring you into and back into relationship with him. Why did he do it? The Bible talks significantly about this journey of Jesus coming to us in such a way that when we follow him, we are born again. But the question I have this morning is born again to what? Why the church? Why us? There are so many different reasons for that. And many people go, well, it's for community. It's because together we can gather together and hear God's word and all of these things are right. But in the letter to Ephesians, Paul wants to take us deeper into the why behind the church. What is God's great purpose for the local church? Last week we saw in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, the most beautiful description of what Christ has done for you as an individual. That you were once dead, but you've been made alive in Jesus Christ. And we can celebrate that, but we are doing a disservice to Paul if we end with that. Because in this next passage, straight after what Paul describes what Jesus has done for you, he says, therefore, this is what it means for us. The beginning of this passage is the word therefore. That everything that has happened to you is here for a reason. And so if you turn in your Bibles or look at the screen, we're going to read from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 to 22 in chapter 3, looking at why the church, why has God brought us together? For what reason are we here? Verse 11 begins, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. 
He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Paul then picks it up later on in chapter three, the same theme. He says, I became a servant of this good news, this gospel, by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. According to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. Paul in this passage says, since you've been radically saved as individuals, do not forsake the implications of what this means for us now as the people of God. He says, the vertical reconciliation you have with God is now to be outworked horizontally in reconciliation with one another. For Paul, the great purpose of the gospel doesn't end with your individual salvation. It proceeds through your individual salvation to a reconciled humanity. It's what he says in verse 14. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. Paul is talking there using the division of Jew and Gentile. Two groups at the time that were divided and hostile towards one another. This hostility can be seen in lots of other ways across the world, but Paul is saying, look, wherever there is hostility, wherever there is division between the two, it's this division which Jesus has come to break down. His purpose was to create one new humanity, reconciled in peace with one another. For Paul, the vertical reconciliation you received with Jesus is just the beginning of the gospel story, which ends with reconciliation amongst humanity. That's why he says, you were Gentiles, you were excluded from the people of God. There was this division, there was a barrier. You were strangers and foreigners. And, but now in Christ, both Jew and Gentile are now members of one household, citizens of one kingdom, together being built into a holy temple. 
So this is the telos, this is the end, this is the, the trajectory of the gospel, is the whole point is that we are so transformed from within, but the reasons why we're divided are now overcome, so that we can now heal together as one humanity. Paul in his letter to the Ephesians takes us deeper into the story of the whole Bible. That's the great point of why Jesus came. And it's not just reconciliation between people and God. It truly extends to reconciliation between people that we might become one unified family. This is so often not the story of our faith. It's not the story that we live in as people raised with the gospel that is so radically individualized that we think coming to church is simply individuals coming together to grow individually in our faith. And yet Paul takes the Ephesians and us deeper into, do you know the bigger story of what Jesus has for us in Jesus Christ? If you want to know the why, you have to go deeper. Paul actually assumes that the church in Ephesus kind of know the whole trajectory of the Bible, the whole melodic line through scripture from beginning to end. We can't assume that. So I'm gonna just quickly trace throughout the whole Bible this melodic line of what Paul is picking up on. I have these little silly diagrams I do every now and again to try and help us. And the first is this, the first slide talks about creation. You probably can't read that, it says creation. But Genesis 1 to 2 point out the pattern of creation, which is unity of community. That in community with God, humanity is in unity with one another. Difference is built into our DNA, male and female, he created them. That this difference is to be celebrated, but the pattern of Genesis 1 and 2 is that we are one humanity, different but united in our relationship with Christ. This was the pattern. Sadly, when we disconnected from God, we disconnected from each other. The fall is the next slide here of Genesis 3 through 12. It points out that if humanity decide to reject God, we, it's inevitable that we start to reject each other. You see, when we're connected to God, our source, our identity, our significance and our value are tethered to him, in which case we can love one another out of an overflow of acceptance and significance disconnect that and we have to search for these deeper appetites of significance and meaning and value and identity elsewhere. And humanity and sin have shown us that one of the first places we go to feel good about ourselves, to find an identity, is being better than other people. We will see difference as an opportunity to feel prideful about ourselves. That we're looking for significance and we go, huh, I will look at difference and I'll put them down in order to feel better about myself. And humanity, therefore, we see the tragic consequences in Genesis 1 through 12. Humanity splinters into individuals competing with one another, jealous over one another, rejecting each other. And by the time we get to Genesis 12, we see the nations so odd with each other, it's symbolized in the languages of dispersing peoples into different groups that are at war with one another. 
This tragic consequence of disconnecting from God breeds division amongst one another. Now we know this all the way through history. We see the signs of this division, not only in Genesis 1 through 12, but then throughout the Old Testament, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, and the Syrians, and this tribal warfare is so far from the pattern and the desire of God's good creation. By the time Jesus comes along, we see in the New Testament, we see Romans and Greeks have been at war with each other. We see that slavery is a commonplace. Jew and Samaritan are at odds with one another. Women are treated as property, not persons. This division is at the root of the problems of our humanity. And you know, all the way through history up until today, you will have experienced what it means to live in a culture, in a context, where people's differences are devalued in order for people to feel superior. There's divisions around skin color, accent, economic status, family of origin. The creativity of the human sin is that we'll pick up any difference to put you down to feel better about ourselves. I remember growing up in the north of England. I was raised in a very deprived area of England. And I was born into a context where I didn't know anything different, but when I went to London later on to work, suddenly I had an accent that people looked down upon because I was from the north. I must be stupid. And most people from the north would look at each other knowingly and subtly start to change our accents so we'd disguise where we're from. I remember growing up in the north in a town called Bradford, which is um, very economically depressed, but also racially divided. In the 60s and 70s, there was significant immigration from um, people from Pakistan and India. And so I grew up in a very multicultural environment. And I remember not realizing the, the so-called problems with this in society that I remember walking home along the canal with two of my friends, Amit, uh, who was a Muslim from Pakistan, and Sanjay, who was a Hindu from India. I didn't know at the time, they were just Amit and Sanjay. And all of a sudden, from over the other side of the canal, were a bunch of boys throwing rocks. And I was caught up in it, but they were throwing rocks at Amit and Sanjay. And they ran and said, get run. I said, what's going on? I said, dude, this is normal. I said, My first taste of, what is this? I also funnily had a name which people would tease because in England, there's a little country next to England called Wales. And you'll know that now if you see the TV show Wrexham on, uh, on Hulu. Um, but Wales was looked down upon from England as a nation and this historic rivalry. And so I was from England, but my father's Welsh who gave me a very Welsh name. So if you're here thinking, I always thought your name was weird. It is weird. <laughs> My Welsh name is Geraint Jones. Yeah, won't go there any further, but Geraint Jones. And being in English with Geraint Jones is a key giveaway that you're Welsh, to which you constantly are therefore looked down upon. And particularly this relationship that the Welsh have with sheep, apparently. <laughs> that was what was normal. And I remember then thinking, we are using everything to divide each other. At age six, we moved 
from the north of England to the utopia of St. Louis, Missouri. And, and I remember as a six-year-old coming into this new environment with these endless smorgasbord buffet dinners everywhere and BMX bike of the early 80s. Was, I call it the ET years. And it was just such an amazing joy to be raised in the suburbs of St. Louis. Except every now and again, I'd realize, oh my word, there's even now more division. And I, would ha I had an English accent then, as I do now, and everything was going swimmingly until July 4th came along. And, and I remember learning about the Revolutionary War, and I remember my friends who were on BMX bikes together around Chesterfield Mall in the suburbs of St. Louis. Suddenly, my friends realized it was 4th of July and they kicked me off my bike. And they started to reenact the Revolutionary War. <laughs> I remember going home battered and bruised, my clothes ripped a bit. And my mum going, what happened? And I said, what on earth is a red coat? But I got my revenge. I also, not physically, but economically. I remember going back to school and realizing that people loved this English accent in St. Louis. I don't think they've ever heard of that before. And I remember thinking, huh, I'm going to get my economic revenge. And so every playground break, I would put a little sign, say, for 10 cents, I will say, chitty, chitty, bang, bang. Which apparently Americans couldn't say at the time, or by no means with the English accent. So I made actually a lot of money. And so, <laughs> but see, all of this, you're rightly thinking, yeah, that's nothing to what I've experienced. And you're right. Many of us play around in the small divisions of society, maybe being overlooked for this and that, or teased for this and that. But of course, sin goes much deeper. And people have lost loved ones historically because of the color of your skin. You've been imprisoned for your ethnic background. You may not have been able to get a mortgage to buy a house because you weren't a certain type of person. I'm I have no idea what it's like to have experienced the depths of this division that many of you have in this room today. All I know is God does. And he weeps and he grieves so much that this is why he came. You see, the story of the Bible is God not coming to give you a little boost in your search for your dreams. It's to break through and as Paul says, divide the walls of hostility and to bring peace. And it starts all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 where he says, I'm gonna promise that one day this is gonna be healed. And he picks a man called Abraham. And he says, through your line, is a promise, here's the next slide. Here's a, through your line, Abraham, I will bring back together again what sin has divided. There's nothing particularly holy about the Jewish nation. We honor them, but, but there's nothing particularly different to them than us. They couldn't do that in their own strength. He says, no, but through your seed will come someone who will bring back together again humanity.
There was prophetic words from Isaiah and Ezekiel and others that the promise of reconciliation, the promise of peace between nations will one day come. And ultimately that promise was fulfilled. And that's in the person of Jesus. And the next slide is, this is how that promise was fulfilled. That Jesus came, God himself came to break through the barriers of hostility. That through the cross and the resurrection, he dealt with the problem of sin that divides. He dealt with the problem that until we are reconnected with the author of significance and value and identity, until we're reconnected there, we're still gonna find it by oppressing others. So I'm gonna reconnect you. I'm gonna do away with the problems of sin and your own problems. I know you're all kind of deeds that need justice. I'll do away with all of that so you can be reconnected. And in your reconnection, you will find now what you were created for so that you are now free to love one another, embrace one another, include one another. In other words, Paul is saying, because of this, therefore we can now get on and do this and bring humanity back together. Not through our own efforts, but because of what he has done. We are free to love one another. That's why, Paul says, the end of the gospel is not the cross, it's not even the resurrection. He says the end of the cross leads to the resurrection, but the end is, in the final slide, one new humanity reconciled together. He says that's where we're going. That's the point of this whole thing, is heaven come to earth, and it principally is shown out that we are now one humanity recreated back to what the intention was. And that's why he says these metaphors, he says because you're no longer individuals but you're fellow citizens. He goes even deeper, he says in Ephesians 2, he says you're not just fellow citizens but you're now God's household, your family. Then he goes even deeper and says you're not just like proximate together but you are being built together into a holy temple. Literally, you're being glued together to become God's holy temple in which he lives by his spirit. Paul's saying, look, when you're looking at what it means to be the church, what it means to follow Jesus, don't you know that the cross and resurrection are simply the doorway into the purpose of now modeling to the world. This is what Jesus does. He brings us back together. He unites what sin has divided. He destroys the barriers that this world have put up. That we can now be a family, we can now be together. This is the great story that we are all caught up in. He says it's not only just to show the world the power of Jesus' name. He says actually when the church lives into it's diversity and unity and cherishing each other's differences as siblings and family members. You not only put on display the power of Jesus for society, he says, you put on display the power of Jesus to the demonic forces in the world. He says his intent was that now through the church, the manifold, which is the varied wisdom of God, should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. 
In other words, when anybody is saying to God, are you real, is your power real? Is what Jesus did ever gonna make any difference? Like what, what was the whole purpose? What's, what's the point? What's the power of Jesus? God the Father says, I'll show you how powerful this is. Look at my church. Look how it includes every skin color, every ethnic background, every socioeconomic status, every male and female, everything that the world has sought to bring division over. I'll show you how powerful the cross is because through the cross and resurrection of Jesus, those hostilities are over and we are now one. See, a, a reconciled church, modeling reconciliation, is not an optional extra. It's the very end goal of Jesus, to bring humanity back together again. I love that this then is shown all the way through the Bible, not just up to Jesus, but through the cross and through the life of Jesus and into the book of Acts. See, people don't realize that this message of Christ has come to reconcile humanity back together again is littered everywhere in the life of Jesus. He, he reaches out across social barriers to include women as disciples. He reaches out across religious barriers to go Samaritans. You know, I'm gonna tell stories about you. I'm gonna go to a Samaritan woman and ask for a drink. He said, I'm gonna cross the barriers. He says, when he goes into the temple and whips it back into shape, the problem with the temple is that they were using the court of the Gentiles where Gentiles could come and worship and be blessed. They turned that into a farmer's market and he went, how dare you? And even the very people who announced his birth were magi from the east. Do you remember Acts chapter two, the birth of the church? We often think it's the time where I'm a card-carrying charismatic and it's my kind of, go-to chapter where I talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit. But do you know what the deepest significance of Acts chapter two is? It's, an, it's a reversal of Genesis 12 in Babel where every nation splintered into multiple nations with different languages in Babel to show the disunity of sin in the world. And then in Acts chapter two, after the cross and, re cross and resurrection, the Holy Spirit is poured out and it says in Acts chapter two, there were people from every nation there and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in languages that they could each hear and understand. The great reversal of Babel has begun. One new humanity. This is then all the way through the book of Acts is Paul saying that we are now one church, one family of all skin color, all ethnicity, all socioeconomic backgrounds that we are to be one family. And the church is that glorious community where we are learning what it means that in Christ we are now siblings. There's no better illustration than this in Acts chapter 16. If you don't know Acts chapter 16, it's the simple story of where Paul, one of the church leaders, goes to a new city called Philippi. He doesn't know any Christians there, but the story is that three people in that city come to know Jesus and create the first church. Now, Luke picks these three and tells us about these three people. Not because we think they're the only three, but Luke is going, I'm gonna tell you, I'm gonna pick three people from this new church and show you how diversity is at the heart of the kingdom of God. And we're meant to read Acts chapter 16 and think, oh my word, what must have that been like that first Sunday when they gathered together? 
Because there were three people Luke describes who came to know Jesus. And they were Lydia, a slave girl, and a Roman jailer. And the point of this is, is not just to go, wow, three people came to know Jesus. The point of this is, look what the gospel does is in bringing every division that society pulls up, that the gospel breaks down. Because these three people were different in every way. I, got, I created a little chart this morning to show you how different they are. <laughs> Employment, one was a, Lydia was a wealthy, self-made businesswoman. The girl was a slave girl, didn't have any rights, and the jailer was an employed blue-collar worker. Economic, one was wealthy, one was poor, one was middle class. Nation, Turkey, Greece, and Italy. Gender, woman, young girl, retired man. He still had a job, but they would give retired military men the jobs in jail. So he was an older man. And then religion, Lydia was a spiritual, open kind of very much an LA kind of vibe of I'm open. <laughs> Just exploring. <laughs> Don't want to be locked down. The slave girl was literally possessed in a fortune teller. And the jailer was just kind of like, I don't know, man, Caesar's God, cool. <laughs> Do you see how different they are? Imagine that first community group. <laughs> right? Imagine that first, like we in, here's the thing, Paul did not go to Philippi and go, man, we've got three radically different people. What we'll do, Lydia will form a church around you for business owners, you know? We'll form a community where you can actually mix it up with people, your life stage, your kind of people, where you'll talk about how to be an entrepreneur for Jesus. Didn't go, you know what, slave girl, we don't own a name. It's just like, you know what? We're not going to just have church for you, just for people who are going through Celebrate Recovery. And then jailer, you know what? You're like a no-nonsense, blue-collar guy. You know, we're not going to just build a church for you and your buddies. The point is, this is the glorious, beautiful power of the gospel that we can now be family. We can love one another. We can celebrate each other's differences. We can learn from each other. In fact, I'm less if you're not around because I am dependent upon you. You compliment me because that's how God created his family. It doesn't just end in the book of Acts. The great story of where we're all going is that day when Jesus comes back and when John had a vision of the end times, when Jesus perfects what he began on the cross, this is what he saw. He says, and I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, every tribe, people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they're wearing robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is the point of the gospel. One new humanity. Rich Viotis, who's a wonderful pastor of a multi-racial church in New York, says this, one could argue that the primary fruit of the gospel is not going to heaven when you die, but the miraculous new family that is created out of death and resurrection of Jesus. In this respect, the cross of Christ isn't just a bridge 
that gets us to God. It's a sledgehammer that breaks down walls that separate us. This is the heart of God. It's not assimilation into the majority. It's not to be like me. It's not to become colorblind. It's not to sink to the lowest common denominator. It's to cherish each other's differences. To see that the uniqueness in who you were made, the story which you came through, the color of your skin, your giftings and your skills and your experiences are all part of that beautiful creativity of God that blend together to be the beautiful family reconciled in Christ Jesus. It's not simply to aim for diversity. A Santa Monica blue bus can be diverse. This is not to have just a group of people in a room who represent different parts of society, different ethnic backgrounds. It's, it's actually no, to move way beyond diversity to family, to be bound together into being the temple of Jesus Christ is to be reconciled. And that word reconciliation, of course, the word reconciliation is a difficult one because yes, of course, we're not reconciling ourselves to any point in history where we once were together. But Paul in the Bible uses the word reconciliation not to point back to some decade when everything was bright and rosy. No, it's theological reconciliation all the way back to God's original intention where humanity was to be unified in our diversity, cherishing each other's difference and one family. Paul says, if you're wrestling to be the church of Jesus Christ, if you're understanding why, if you're thinking, why on earth are we here? Why not just sing some worship songs at home, listen to some great teaching and then wait for heaven? Because the whole point is for redeemed individuals to become a reconciled community. And if you're not working towards that horizontally, it might not have worked vertically in your life yet. And at Vintage, we are committed to being the church of Jesus Christ. And so I wanna close with my four prayers for our community. First of all, my first prayer is that we would all together pursue to be a reconciled community. That we'd pursue it out of celebration of each other's differences that together we can amplify how God has made each and every one of us and be better together for it. I love the fact that Lizzie and I had a taste of this when we lived in Geneva, Switzerland for a few years. I took a job there and because I couldn't speak French, we went to an English speaking church. And there was a church from so many different nations because the UN and WHO and other NGOs are based in Geneva, Switzerland. So our church on Sunday was full of diversity from around the world. And it was the most beautiful, intoxicating experience, worshiping next to people who were so different to me and yet you're my brother, you're my sister. We used to have international Sundays where you'd come dressed in your national costume. It was amazing. The Africans always won it hands down, man. <laughs> We'd have like international brunch where you'd bring food from your kind of native country. As an Englishman, I did not win that competition. <laughs> but we tasted a glimpse of what the revelation picture is 
That, oh my word, do you see how we are so much better together cherishing each other in our differences? What does that look like for us? I am so pleased that we are in a city that is diverse. That there are some parts of the world which travel and historical circumstances have mean it's a pretty um, monosyllabic community. Not LA. We have rich diversity in our city. What an opportunity then to look at our city which is so often divided and has the scars of deep wounds of division that we are planted here for such a time as this to show our city, look what Jesus can do. That in a city with a majority population, Hispanic and white and African, African-American, Asian and a few Brits. <laughs> that in Jesus we can go, you know what LA? You, this city has been ravaged by ethnic and racial division. Which the hurt is still absolutely being felt. How can we as a church be a prophetic voice to say we found the answer and his name is Jesus? That we can be one church, diverse in every way, celebrating each other's difference and being a beacon of hope across our city that in Jesus we can be unified. I love it. We want our church to represent that. We want our church, we work hard and we're gonna work harder to make sure that our leaders, our stage, our board, our community is a community of reconciliation and cherishing diversity. That's my prayer. My second prayer is that we be a community of justice in our city. Rich Viotis writes this, he says, there can be no true reconciliation without justice. For relationships to be fully restored, things have to be made right. Justice is the presence of right verdicts and right relationships. And it's characterized by undoing power abuses and redressing sins against oppressed people. We as a community, therefore, need to learn the tragedies of, of the past. Listen to stories of our own community who have suffered greatly. Grieve with them, but stand shoulder to shoulder to seek justice. Not for the sake of revenge, but in Christ for the sake of reconciliation. Thirdly, my prayer is that we continue to celebrate the diversity of God's rich body of Christ across the whole city. That we are in Santa Monica, and Santa Monica has a skewed percentage ethnically. It's more white than other parts of the city. The tragedy is that because of racism, that's the case in many ways historically. But we have one foot in the city of Santa Monica, but we are fundamentally, the other foot is in the city of LA, that we are one. And we do join in relationship with other churches, particularly of majority color over at Tapestry LA, Faithful Central and other churches to say, we are one in Jesus Christ. To celebrate each other, to preach in each other's churches, to lift each other up, to go on this journey together. And then finally, as a community, we are to embrace the practices of reconciliation. And I'm just gonna call out three for you yourself that you can do. I'm gonna call out four. The first thing is prayer. Because this is a battle that Paul talks about, not just against flesh, but principalities and powers. 
the spiritual forces of this world enjoy the divisions of humanity. And so we have to pray against them. Secondly, we have to exercise friendship with people who are different than us. We're in a tension, right? We want to find friends who we can easily connect with, and so the rule of thumb, you know this, married couples want to meet with married couples, singles, singles. Older people never want to meet with older people. You want to meet with younger people. (laughs) But there is this commonality which we enjoy, but that's not the end of your friendship. And in fact, we need to lean into, actually, I want Christ's friendships, which are, we are different in so many ways, but we are the same in the most important way. And that is where sinners saved by grace, redeemed by Christ and in the family of Jesus together. Is therefore to befriend and enjoy and cherish people different to you. Economically, socially, employment, ethnic, in every way. Put into practice the reconciliation power of Jesus. Two more practices, communion. We do communion once a month here because it's the table as as a family, we come to a common table. We're a family. And I'm gonna end with this, is when we come to the table, we begin with this fourth practice, which is confession. The joy of confession says, Jesus, I need you. I need you. I need you to help me with my vertical relationship with you so I can horizontally live abundantly in reconciliation with others. And we have to all admit, because of his grace we can freely admit, sometimes we haven't done that. And so we're gonna end this morning service in confession that we might move towards beautiful, a beautiful community of reconciliation. So let's stand together. I love you just to close your eyes. I love our prayer team to come up. And just in this moment between you and Jesus, just let your heart connect with him. And what is he saying to you? What is he doing in your life? Jesus, we thank you. We get to celebrate the beautiful diversity of your family. To cherish each other, to love one another, to prefer each other. To stand shoulder to shoulder together. But it begins with our relationship with you. And so in this moment, we confess where we have not done that. And hear these words of an ancient prayer of confession. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name.
Amen. Church, the prayer team are here. Come for prayer. Whatever God's doing in your life, we'd love to pray for you. And now let's worship the one who brings us together. Thanks for joining us for another week. We'd love to connect with you at one of our gatherings or online at vintagechurchla.com.